Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. This morning is our last chapel, and of course we will be saying goodbye next week to a number of graduates. And so as I was praying and thinking about what might I be able to say to those that were leaving, uh, I came across a text that I have uh, studied for many years. It's been very uh, helpful to me and very convicting to me. And also, even if you're not graduating, I believe this text has a much-needed word for all of us uh, whom God has called into the ministry. And so take your Bible and join me in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning with verse 3 and studying through verse 10. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 through verse 10, a text entitled, Snares That Will Sink the Servant of God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning with verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing. But he is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which comes envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, from such withdraw yourself. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. In God's amazing grace, he has called us to salvation. And in his amazing goodness, he has called us to service, neither of which are things that we rightly deserve. The great reformer Martin Luther understood this to be True, and he understood it, I think, quite well because he said this, and I quote, If I could become king or emperor, I would not give up my office as a preacher. And to this, Henry Blackaby would add, You are the custodian of the most important information in the world. You are the specialist in what God has to say to people through the Bible. Your divine calling far supersedes all other professions. Your presence and impact have eternal consequences. Indeed, to be a servant of King Jesus is a high and it is an awesome calling, but it's also a calling filled with dangers and temptations, uh, with quicksand and landmines, some of which amazingly can be of our own making. In this particular text, Paul is going to warn us specifically of four different snares that potentially can sink the servant of God. He is going to talk to us about pride. He's going to talk to us about war words. He's going to talk to us about ungodly ambition. And he is going to warn us about unbridled greed. In fact, he says in verse 9 that these are snares. 
that can sink the servant of God. Indeed, these are snares that ultimately are sins that find their origin in the human heart. But tragically, such sins never stay in the human heart, but rather they will move and reveal themselves in our words. They will reveal themselves in our actions. And using very picturesque language, Paul says in verse 9 that they can drown and destroy. He tells us they can lead us astray. And in verse 10, they can pierce our hearts with many sorrows. And so this text is the kind of passage that says, uh, be alert, be on guard, be on watch about these four particular snares because they're always lurking about trying to invade your life and trying to destroy the ministry that God has given you. We must indeed not allow these snares to get a foothold. I would even say, no, they should not even be allowed to have a toehold in your life or in mine. And so it begins in verse 3 and verse 4 of this chapter by saying, we must avoid the sin of unhealthy pride. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrines which accord with godliness, he is proud knowing nothing. Of course, the Bible has a lot to say about pride, doesn't it? Proverbs 16:18 says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Three times in Proverbs 3:34, in James uh, chapter 4 and verse 5 and 1 Peter 5:5 5, 5, the Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 4, Paul has in mind a person who is proud and who lives in a settled state of pride. In fact, he uses the perfect tense verb there. He is proud. He is in a settled state. He is in an abiding state of pride and arrogance. And he is basically full of himself. He actually thinks he's something when the Bible says he's actually nothing. In fact, the New English Bible refers to him as a pompous ignoramus. And Eugene Peterson in the message says they are nothing more than ignorant windbags. Professing to be wise, they are actually playing the fool. Now, why is it that Paul warns us about this kind of uh, sin in the life of those called to the ministry? Well, first of all, he says pride will reject healthy doctrine. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words... It's interesting that phrase teaches otherwise is a single word in the Greek text. It's a present tense verb and again implying at least a continuous action or a continuous attitude. Furthermore, it's an interesting combination of the word hetero and the word didaskalia. Hetero didaskalia. It has the idea of a different kind of teaching, another teaching, a different kind of doctrine. In fact, that's how the New American Standard and the ESV translated. If anyone has a different kind of doctrine, Paul says such doctrine, such teaching does not consent or agree with what he calls here wholesome words or sound words. And he amplifies what he means by that by saying these are first the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, they are teachings that promote godliness. That word wholesome or that word sound is related to our English word hygiene. Uh, the idea of, uh, of something that is healthy. Uh, something that indeed causes one to prosper in terms of their physical being. And so he says pride will reject healthy teaching. 
Pride will reject healthy words. Pride will reject healthy doctrine that is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, it is grounded in the gospel. It is grounded in Christ. And then secondly, he says, this is the kind of teaching that is consistent with godly living. Now, Paul is going to anticipate where his argument is going to go. And so Paul warns us here that corrupt words, false teaching, unhealthy doctrine will cause us to both, one, think wrongly, and because we're now thinking wrongly, secondly, tragically, we will live wrongly as well. In other words, Paul once more reminds us that nothing is more crucial to healthy doctrine and sound teaching, and that you and I would persevere in the ministry, than that we stay tethered to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To get off of that gospel is to leave the path of Christ-likeness. To leave that gospel is to miss the natural path that ushers in godliness. So he says, pride will reject healthy doctrine. But secondly, pride will lead to empty thinking. He says there in verse 4 that those who have rejected wholesome teaching, they're proud, knowing nothing. They're proud, and they know nothing. In essence, using this kind of vocabulary, Paul is painting for us a picture of a spiritually sick person. And Paul is saying because they have left healthy doctrine, they digress into pride. And they digress into empty thinking that leads to all sorts of spiritual complications. Like a spiritual cancer, pride spreads throughout the body, infecting organ after organ, cell after cell. What are the symptoms of such a malady? Well, you think you know something. When in actuality, you know nothing. You're puffed up when you should go low. And you're conceited. When in actuality, you should be humble. In other words, pride causes us to lose a healthy, proper sense of self-perspective. We don't really see ourselves correctly. We don't really understand who we are in our sinfulness apart from the amazing grace of God rooted and founded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pascal, I think, got it just exactly right in a statement that I think gives good commentary to what we're reading here. Pascal said this, Knowing God without knowing our own wretchedness makes for pride. Knowing our own wretchedness without knowing God makes for despair. But knowing Jesus Christ strikes the balance because He shows us both God and He shows us our wretchedness. And so staying tethered to the gospel, staying linked to Christ is the cure to this sin of unhealthy pride. You say, uh, Danny, you think the ministry uh, suffers from pride far more often than I would ever want to comment or say. Uh, sometimes when I go to various convention meetings, it's more like a peacock show. That it is a gathering of humble believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I, I do not begin to point the finger out there for realizing I need to also have the finger pointed back at myself because I can easily be seduced by this sin. I can easily think of myself as being something more than I really am. And so on a continual basis, we need to be searching our hearts, staying again closely tethered to the gospel. That we might indeed avoid this malady called unhealthy pride. But secondly, 
The Bible also says in verse 4 and verse 5, we must avoid the sin of what I call useless war words. Useless war words. He says there in verse 4 that such a man is proud knowing nothing, but he is obsessed with disputes and, look at this phrase now, arguments over words. You see, the spiritual cancer of pride cannot be isolated and it cannot be contained. It is of a very malignant sort. But unlike a physical bodily cancer, this kind of cancer has the capacity and the ability to go airborne. In fact, it always does. You see, it's a germ. It's a disease. It is that which, once it has infected and corrupted you, moves very quickly to attack and infect others. You see, the goal of pride is total infestation of the body of Christ. And useless war words is a prime example of the malady and the sin and the disease of pride. What will happen when you have this war word mindset uh, capturing your soul and heart? Well, first of all, the Bible says it will corrupt how you live. You see, pride will turn you into what I call a word warrior, a word warrior. Because you know you're right, because you know everybody else is wrong, you will be obsessed, as the text says, you will have a diseased, or as the New American Standard so beautifully says, you will have a morbid interest with disputes and controversy. In other words, the fact of the matter is, you just like to fight. You just like to fight. And if you're not fighting the devil, then you'll fight your brothers and sisters in Christ. You just like to fight. The fact is, you like to use words. And you would rather use words to fight your brothers and sisters in the church than you would to use your words to evangelize those who are lost and in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, this cancer spreads rapidly throughout the body. And as a result of it, there are a number of symptoms that will appear when you are driven by what can be called war words. For example, he says there, you will be driven to envy. Envy. I want what you have. And I will stop at nothing to get it. Furthermore, I have a sneaking suspicion that for some reason God is holding out on me. And if I had this, if I was placed here, if I possessed something else, then I would be happy and I would be content. Do you realize that the very root of envy is unbelief? Because in essence, you're saying God is keeping from you that which is his very best. He speaks of strife. That is dissensions, always looking for a theological or a church fight, ready, as one man said, to fight at the drop of a hat and always willing to drop the hat yourself. Reviling, literally is the word blasphemies, which means slander. Now, because pride is dominating you, some of the war words you use are abusive language, evil suspicions. You're always looking to criticize. You never give your brother or sister the benefit of the doubt. You even move to question other people's motives, something you could never, ever, ever know. And in fact, even in some occasions, you would rather misrepresent others than take the time to find out the real truth. It will corrupt how you live, but also it will corrupt what you believe. Look at verse 5. Paul says these war words, they lead to wranglings of men and they lead to corrupt minds who are destitute of the truth. 
In other words, Paul says this corrupt and unhealthy lifestyle is nothing more than one translation said it. Constant friction, constant friction. In other words, instead of bringing health and healing to the church, you are irritating it. (laughs) You wear the body out and only cause needless pain. Why do some people, why do some ministers act like this? Well, again, it's rooted once more in the way that you think. Having left Christ, having moved away from the centrality of the gospel, the Bible says you become men of corrupt minds. Again, he uses the perfect tense. You're in a settled state of depravity in terms of your thinking. And secondly, says you are destitute of the truth. Again, he uses the perfect tense verb. You're in a settled state of deprivation when it comes to the truth. So because pride has grabbed your heart, because pride now manifests itself in war words, you are destitute of the truth and you are deprived of correct thinking. Paul in particular says there's one malady then that will accompany these things. It's interesting how it digresses, isn't it? You start off with pride and then you develop a mouth that is always uh, harping and criticizing and tearing and brutalizing And the next thing you know, you've now moved into an area where you begin to think nothing really matters but you, your plan, your purpose, your agenda. And Paul says you now even begin to move into a world where you think that uh, godliness is actually a means of gain. Your heart becomes that corrupt. You really do think you're the most important. You really do think you're the best. You really do deceive yourself into thinking, boy, would God be in a tough, tough situation without me on his side. So as a result of that, you begin to think and you develop a spirit of entitlement. Now, I will say to you, brothers and sisters, that is one thing that I have seen far too often in the ministry. Men who develop a spirit of entitlement. They again deceive themselves into thinking, well, I've left everything to follow Jesus. All you left to follow Jesus is your sin. Shame on you and shame on me for thinking that we're anything more than that. But because I've left everything to follow Jesus, that guy down at the uh, cleaner should give me a discount when I step in there to have my clothes laundered or cleaned. When I uh, have someone come to my house to perform a particular task, at at best, they ought to do it for free. But certainly, they ought to give me a a discount. A few years ago, I was uh, down in Florida, and I had spoken at a church and had to hurry back to the airport. And so, uh, we jumped in the car, we raced to the airport, and we got enough time where the, the very kind man that was driving said, we can swing through the McDonald's. Uh, and you can get something real quick to eat there if you'd like. And I said, well, that'd be fine. So we go into the McDonald's, and as we're standing in line, a church van pulls up just outside the McDonald's. And in comes a group of kids, but immediately, I guess it was the, the student minister. Uh, he and another man walk right up to the counter and say, uh, we have brought these kids in here. And so just like you would with a, uh, a traveling uh, bus, we would like our meal for free. Well, the young lady on the other side said, uh, well, sir, we, we don't give anybody a free meal. And he fired back, well, yes, you do. Anytime someone comes through here with a bus full of uh, people, you will give the driver a free meal. And we want our free meal. 
Well, I by now, I, I should have been more brave. I should have gone over and punched him out in Jesus' name, but I, I wimped out on this occasion. I was just kind of stunned in horror. And finally, he said, I want to talk to your manager. And so the young lady went back, brought the manager out. Again, the guy began to berate about, we want our free meal. And finally, the manager said, I tell you what, give the blankety-blank his free meal and get them the blank out of here. And I thought, what a great witness for the gospel. Would to God they would at least park the van around the back so no one would know that it was a Baptist church van. You say, so you don't think he deserves a free meal? I don't think anybody deserves a free meal. Now, if somebody wants to do something nice for you, that's great. And I will say to you, some of us in this room have to learn to have an attitude of thanksgiving when people do nice things. People will do nice things for you in ministry. And praise God, be humble, be gracious, but also be willing to receive because you're giving them the chance to bless you. But that you would have an expectation, a sense of entitlement. That because I'm in the ministry, they should do this for me. That is a sinful, horrible, wretched, depraved way of thinking. And you're prideful. And yes, like that jerk in the McDonald's, you begin to use war words and destroy your reputation and the integrity of the gospel. And you begin to think you're actually deserving of these kind of perks because you simply are in the ministry. Warren Wiersbe said it this way about such men. They are spiritual shysters. What they do is not true ministry. It is just a religious business. They are nothing more than religious racketeers. In other words, they're hirelings, not shepherds. They're wolves in sheep's clothing who will slaughter and destroy the church if it will further their agenda. The Bible says we have got to avoid the sin of unhealthy pride. We have got to avoid the sin of useless war words. But now, number three, we must avoid the sin of ungodly ambition. Verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. You see, Eugene Peterson is exactly right when he says this about the Christian ministry. Listen carefully to these wise words. I don't know of any other profession in which it is quite as easy to fake it as ours. We can do it by adopting a reverential demeanor, cultivating a stained glass voice, slipping occasional words like eschatology into the conversation, not often enough to confuse people, just enough to keep them aware that our habitual train of thought is a cut above the pew level. Without prayer, scripture study, and spiritual direction, there can be no substance. Without these practices, the best of talents and best of intentions cannot prevent a thinning out into a life that becomes mostly an impersonation. I'm convinced that few things contribute to ministerial impersonation more than personal ambition. Now, I'm also convinced that we sometimes even cloak it in pious jargon, but it's easily exposed with what I call an eye examination, not an EYE, but an eye 
examination. I remember very well when Alistair Begg was here just a few weeks ago. And he raised the specter that for those of us who preach the gospel, those who preach the word of God, how much time do we spend talking about the word as opposed to how much time do we spend talking about ourselves? And the fact of the matter is nobody's going to be converted by your life, no matter how noble it might be. They're only going to be converted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, if you are lifting yourself up week after week from the pulpit, it is inevitable that you'll be putting the Lord Jesus down. We both can't go up together, can we? We need to have the John the Baptist mindset. I must decrease in order that he might increase. Well, what is it that Paul says we can do to avoid the sin of ungodly ambition? Number one, he says, just be content in who you are in Christ. Paul contrasts beautifully true godliness uh, in verse 6 with that pseudo-godliness in verse 5. And the ESV makes the contrast really well. Now, now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. In other words, Paul challenges us to be a person set free from external circumstances and external expectations. And how do we do that? We simply trust in God's providence. We simply trust in God's plan day in and day out. This is a life not of self-sufficiency, but a life of Christ-sufficiency. And we're simply happy, satisfied, content with who we are in Christ. But then secondly, he says, be content in what you have from Christ. Paul gets very fundamental. Paul gets very basic. He makes a, a simple observation that too many people either forget or willfully ignore. And his observation is this. Look at it. You came into the world with nothing. And you will leave this world with nothing. In other words, here is a healthy left behind theology. Job 1.21 says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. And so getting this basic truth down in terms of a ministerial life philosophy, verse 8 puts everything in proper perspective. Having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. In other words, if I have something to eat and something to wear, it's a good day. If I have something to eat and something to wear, it is a good day. But false teachers don't believe that. They believe there need to be perks. They believe there need to be additions. They believe they need more. But yet Jesus had something to say about this. And it would not surprise me if the words of our Lord were ringing in Paul's ears when he wrote these words. That being Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Over the last several years, amazingly, at least to me. People have asked me from time to time. Sometimes they're prospective students. Uh, sometimes they are current students. Sometimes they're churchmen, uh, just folks where I'm traveling about. But they'll say, uh, how is it that you work things out to become a seminary president? And then sometimes they will say, did you aspire when you were in college and seminary to be a seminary president? And I will always say to them with absolute honesty and truthfulness, when God called me in the ministry uh, on the Papago Indian Reservation in Sales, Arizona, when I was 20 years old, I did not even know that seminaries existed. 
In fact, I didn't even know I was a Southern Baptist. I knew I was a Baptist who lived in the South, but I did not know that there was a... The only preachers I knew outside of my preacher were Billy Graham and Charles Stanley because I lived in Atlanta. I was an athlete in high school. Uh, those were my gods at that particular time in my life. And so I was just stunned that God would call me into the ministry. And so I went to my pastor, probably like many of you did, and said, what do I do? And he said, well, you can go to Bible college or you can go to a regular college and then go to seminary. If you'd like to start now, go to Bible college. So I went to Bible college and in a short time, the Lord allowed us to serve a church in Dallas. And I want to tell you what, Charlotte and I for six and a half years were absolutely at peace and joy and contentment. We could have stayed there the rest of our lives. But in God's providence, some circumstances came about where we were not in any church for about a year. And then I moved to another church where I served for three years, and they were three wonderful years. And we could have been content to stay there the rest of our lives. We were happy as we could be serving the Lord right there. But in God's providence, a little while later, he moved us to Crystal College. And I began as a teacher. I then was asked to be the dean of students, and we were there for five years, five wonderful years. I was content to be there for the rest of my life. Then we were here for four years. Then we were in Louisville for eight years. Now we're back here for five years. And folks, I can tell you with all of the honesty and integrity of my heart, I was happy and at peace and content in each and every one of those situations. And you see, the fact of the matter is we need to have such a confidence in God. That no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, we are confident that we have all that we need in Jesus. And if we'll just get there, we can avoid the sin of unhealthy pride, the sin of useless war words, the sin of ungodly ambition, and then finally, we can avoid the sin of unbridled greed. Apparently, the human heart is especially susceptible to the seduction of riches and the snare of money. Paul, therefore, returns to the theme he briefly mentioned in verse 5. And now he gives us an expanded uh, commentary, an expanded exposition about the danger of greed. And again, brothers and sisters, for those of us who live here in America, we especially need to heed what he has to say. He makes three observations about what greed can and will do in your life. Number one, greed will destroy you. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and uh, perdition. Paul says those who continually desire, who have as a resolve of their life to be rich, will always fall into temptation. In fact, using again very picturesque words, he says they will be snared. They will be drowned. They will be destroyed by the deadly waters of foolish and harmful lust. Oh, they don't see it. That's why they're snared. They don't discern that these are very dangerous waters and they are drowned. Money and riches become their God. And yet they eventually discover that their God does not satisfy them. Rather, it destroys them. Greed will destroy you. Secondly, greed will deceive you. Verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. 
You see, the God of money always promises one thing, but eventually it gives you something altogether different and something altogether unexpected. Oh, you fall in love with it. So you give it your heart. And in return, the silver seductress bursts to you all kinds. That's the correct understanding here. All kinds of evil. You see, what will happen is greed in one area will almost certainly lead to greed in another. Foolish and harmful lust in one area like money almost always leads to foolish and harmful lust in another. It's not by accident that throughout human history, money and sex go together. And in the day and age in which we live, I don't have enough fingers and toes to count my friends. Not my acquaintances, my friends who are no longer in the ministry because they were seduced and snared and destroyed by these unhealthy lusts for either sex, money, or both. Understand, Paul is not condemning money. He is condemning the love of money because he understands that that the root of the love for money is an idol, a false god, and false gods never satisfy. They never give you what they promise. They never deliver what you really need. So they will destroy you. They will deceive you. And finally, they will disappoint you. He ends up in verse 10 by saying, yes, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves. Note the reflexive words there. Pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Greed leads you away from God and dependency upon Him. It leads you away from Jesus and satisfaction in Him. And amazingly, you pierce yourself. You inflict upon yourself a mortal wound filled with pain and sorrow. You sell out your family for wealth. You compromise your ministry for wealth. You rationalize your demands for ambition and wealth. And you deceive yourself into thinking, I deserve this. I deserve this. I remember several years ago, a prominent minister in Dallas who fell as a result of both a lust for money and a lust for women. And he rationalized it by saying when he was confronted, well, I guess I was just working too hard to serve my people. What kind of nonsense is that? And yet, is it not true, brothers and sisters, that sin always makes us stupid? We do stupid things. We think in stupid ways. We deceive ourselves. And ultimately, we find ourselves tragically, tragically disappointed. Now, I want to tell you something. Spiritual compromise in these areas will give you a guilty conscience if you're truly born again. Don't be surprised if God becomes your money and these harmful lusts become to dominate you that you don't sleep well at night. You have a difficult time looking yourself in the mirror when you get up in the morning. You're always looking over your shoulder because you think someone is after you. No, they're not after you. He already has a hold of you. And his name is the devil. Johnny Hunt is a dear friend of mine and why I'm so glad that he is currently leading our Southern Baptist Convention. If you were to ask me in a thumb sketch to summarize what you think Brother Johnny's philosophy of ministry is, that's very easy. I've heard him say it a hundred times if I've heard him say it once. Stay close and clean. 
stay close and clean. What he means by that is stay close to Jesus and clean in your personal life. Why? Because the two go together. Stay close to Jesus and your doctrine and life will be clean. Stay close to Jesus in doctrine and life and you will find peace and contentment wherever it is that God sends you and whatever it is that God calls you to do. Stay close and clean to Jesus. And the snares that sink the servant of God, they will never, ever capture you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this text. It is a stern warning for those of us called to leadership in the church to be very careful about how we conduct our personal lives. And Lord, evidently, even in our redeemed state, having been bought by the precious blood of Christ, having been regenerated by the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit, having now a justified standing before you and the Spirit's presence in our life to promote our sanctification, we are still very susceptible to pride, that sin which took down Satan and Adam and Eve, we're very susceptible, Lord, to personal ambition and greed and even useless war words. For some reason, those sins afflict in particular those called to a leadership assignment in your church. If it were not so, Paul would have not felt the need to warn us. So, dear Lord, I pray for those who will be graduating next week. But, Lord, I also pray for all of us, myself included, that we will be on guard against these snares that can sink the servant of God. That, Lord, we might not fail thee, but rather we will walk faithfully now and forever, being content in who we are in Jesus, being satisfied that Jesus will always provide exactly what we need for the accomplishment of his perfect will in our lives. And for that, we can rejoice, we can have faith, and we can say thank you for not only saving us, but calling us to serve you. We pray this in your son's strong and wonderful name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.